Welcome to Art from the Outside, a podcast for anyone who wants an outside-in look at the art world. I'm Amitha Raman. And I'm Will Pally. And each episode, we're talking to the people who inspire us to help unravel the arts. Hey, Amitha. Hey, Will. I'm really loving the new haircut. Thank you very much. It's um, Someone told me it was dirty white boy hair the other day. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but um, I think I took it as a compliment. <laughs> well, whatever, whatever the description is, it looks, it looks great on you. <laughs> so what's it. on your radar this week? Ooh, okay. So I'm sorry to be really boring, but perhaps unexpectedly, the election is absolutely on my radar. And actually, more specifically, my dwindling bank account, because the way that I have been responding to the election is every time I get triggered is doing a micro donation to either Jamie Harrison, who should beat Lindsey Graham, or to Joe Biden, who should obviously beat Trump. So multiple $25 donations, multiple times a day, is is not great. So that's definitely my dwindling <laughs> bank account. And hopefully, the craziness of the election will be over soon. Well, hopefully, it's all going to a good cause. And we'll all be happy, you know, after the election, that it was money oh, well spent. So. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you bring that up, because I feel like we're all, you know, obviously very focused on the election. And it can be easy sometimes to feel overwhelmed and helpless, like we're just one person, one vote. But our next guest actually exemplifies someone who is the very opposite of that and makes me feel a lot of hope because she's just one powerhouse human being that um, really uses art for activism in a, in a really impressive way. So I'm excited to feature her today. This episode, we are delighted to be joined by one of the most hardworking, inspiring people I know, the Iranian-American, Brooklyn-based artist and activist, Amy Koshman. Amy's practice pushes the formal and conceptual boundaries of art making to foster progressive social change through performance, social practice, video, rap music, installation, tattooing, teaching, and writing. She has shown at venues such as the Whitney Museum, the Guggenheim Museum, Times Square Arts, and Socrates Sculpture Park, just to name a few. In addition, Amy has received residencies at the Watermill Center, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, and Anderson Ranch. She's collaborated with Lori Anderson, Tina Barney, and Ann Carson, among others. Amy received a master's degree from New York University and bachelor's degrees in film and media studies from University of Texas at Austin. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you here today. Super excited to be here with y'all. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Welcome, Amy. <laughs> thank you. That is yeah. the most incredible introduction I'm like humbled and slightly embarrassed by those accomplishments. Oh my God, stop. That's, <laughs> that's insane. It's such a mouthful and it's also on. so funny. <laughs> oh my God, I know. Because I, know. I really had no idea that you were so accomplished. I mean, I just thought you were, you know, an amazing artist and a great friend, but then I did all this research and I was like, wow, I have such challenged friends. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. And it's funny in these moments where you just meet people, right? And you're vibing with them. And then you're suddenly like, oh my God, like you are way beyond what I ever thought you were. And it's like, but 
but what what are we? We're just like people in the world trying to survive, you know, even though we've done these things and yes, yes, yes. But in this moment, all of that seems it doesn't don't we seem so far away from that? I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but like the institutional changes that are happening right now um, and what that's going to look like moving forward in the art community and and academic community and so many other communities and just the world at large. It's like. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and where people like what shows look like, what validation within an artistic career starts to look like, you know, um, given given all of this. It's it's such a weird pivot moment. But that's aside. It's a very, very weird time and a very, very busy time uh, for you, especially because I've been seeing all of the organizing that you've been doing, you know, first starting with delivering meals to undocumented families in your district and now um, really being on the front lines of the protests, um, the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm curious um, if you could tell us uh, about that experience working as an activist in New York City over the last few months. Yeah. And sort of how you balance your time as both an artist and an activist. Yeah, it's it's a, that's a great question. So I you know, I as this all started was really thinking about um what an artistic practice can look like in the face of kind of social crisis and political crisis. And it's been something that I've been investigating and exploring for a while now. And in some ways, it's been something that's always been part of my practice, but really kicked in around the time of Trump getting elected and deciding to kind of focus a little bit more on the political and and, and the electoral. And I feel like I was in this place where I was kind of ramping up for this city council run thinking about how do we engage in our local community. And then COVID hit. And it was like, wait a minute, I need Mm -hmm. to take a step back and really do a deep investigation of what is the community and what does the community really need in this moment? And, and for me, it was like, I have multiple communities, right? So I have the community of the art world, which is like my people, you know, my career, where most of my friends live. And then I have the community of my local community of Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where I'm kind of, you know, building roots and building connections with folks And I think we're seeing that happen, folks in the hyper-local realm, like who's really around you in this moment and how can you support those people? So for me, I I really, I started getting into... connecting with local organizers and some of the organizers I had been working with before. And, and what the first need that hit was, was the undocumented community in this area is very large and as well as the immigrant community, the Latinx immigrant community. Mm, And, you know, and folks literally couldn't get food because of the fact that they were undocumented. The city was not providing them any um, access to food for their, for people who were now unemployed and now couldn't afford to go and buy massive groceries for their family. So I started getting involved in an organization um, called Brooklyn Immigrant Community Support that is run out of this um, 
church called Good Shepherd Lutheran in Bay Ridge, and it was a series of organizers, Fabiola Mendieta, Devin Morales, and Juan Carlos Ruiz, that and, and a Don Palermo. They all kind of, like, brought us in and were like, oh, cool. we need massive help with— getting volunteers, like making this operation streamlined so that really we can feed as many families as possible. And I was like thinking about that also from an artistic perspective, because being an artist, you know, it's, it's about creating something out of nothing in a lot of ways. It's about having ideas and having people buy into those ideas and, and kind of like enter, enter that you know what I mean? Yeah. And so what I realized was, and this is something about my artistic practice where I find myself um, identifying as like a, an edge walker or a bridge builder um, because I feel like I like to think about my artistic practice as a as something fluid and evolving. And so for me in that moment, I was like, my creative output is really in building, helping build out this organization and this mutual aid um, effort to be streamlined, to be something that can feed the community. I'm curious, we'd been speaking earlier about the relationship between artists and activists and how some people are largely one or the other. How do you find that your artistic practice is playing a role in this larger political uh, social work that these amazing sort of counterparts and colleagues that you are working with now? So that is a really great question, Will. And I think that gets more into the second part of the of sort of like the um, outreach and organizing that I've been doing. So I think that with being an artist activist, you're always walking this fine line between these worlds. And you and I think in this moment, there's a real care that has to be given to um making sure that it doesn't feel like it's about, and this is a really interesting thing about being an artist activist in this moment, because in this moment, we're kind of learning to decenter ourselves in a lot of these conversations. Mm -hmm. We're, you know what I mean? We're learning yeah. about this process of radical listening and kind of sitting there and, and allowing all of these different movements that are unfolding, whether it's about anti-racism, anti-police brutality, whether it's about undocumented people yep. needing food, you know, whatever it is, it's like we are sitting there and we are learning from the movement builders and the artists who have been doing this work for a very long time in these areas. And so I think... Um, I think for me, where things have shifted is that now... In doing this work, I'm working with a community um, series of community organizers in Sunset Park called Sunset Park Popular Assembly, and we've been doing rallies around Black Amazing. Lives Matter and organizing rallies from scratch, um, specifically also around a federal prison called Metropolitan Detention Center in my neighborhood because someone, a black man, 35 years old, Jamil Floyd, was pepper sprayed to death there last week, which is wild. And so we've been working with his family to hold these visuals. Now, what's interesting is where does artistic practice sort of come into the realm of movement building? And that's where we're at right now. We're seeing street movements oh. happening again and the need for creative messaging, signage, um, you know, sort of 
How do you um, create spectacle in the streets that actually can move an agenda or move a campaign forward? So, you know, part of this whole action that we're thinking about doing at the at the prison, it's like, well, how do we also bring in um, visuals? How do we bring in banners? How do we bring in this idea of banner mm-hmm. making so that people can feel invested in the action? But how do we make it something that's beyond what we're used to seeing at these rallies? Because I think that that aesthetic of um, activism keeps that world a little bit closed off in terms of who feels like they absolutely do you know what I mean yeah Yeah. it's so it's so interesting because it's that you say that it's the aesthetic because it's not just the message it's also like the way that it's visually presented and I know we've talked about that before how you use your um skills in you know video at making and uh, video production and graphic design and like why does why do things have to look ugly and like why do political powerpoints have to look ugly like why can't everything just be raised a bar you know from an aesthetic perspective and make it more digestible what we're seeing now is everything around us you know, has some kind of political tone to it on some level. Even the mutual aid work that I was doing, there were a lot of like electoral people involved in that work because of the optics of that. It's all about optics and pol- and political optics. And so in thinking about the power of optics, the power of that in social media, and the power of that skill that we have as artists to make that something where people in the art world want to participate, people in the general public public want to participate. That level of spectacle is not something that's mocking, but it's something that if you organize it with movement leaders can be super powerful in terms of bringing awareness to an issue to put pressure to create change. And I think that that is where I see the power of art making within this. So for example, I'm also a rapper And I also like make music myself. So thinking about when we're having these um, performances or rallies at, and it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's interesting because it also rides that line. Like what is a rally? What is a performance? And a rally obviously is to have this political agenda, but on some level you're performing at a rally no matter what kind of my next move as well to create these teams of people, these collaborations between people, because again, we're kind of seeing that the individual voice and this issue of like self-aggrandizement within these movements can be very problematic because it's not about one person right now. You know, so if you're a political Mm -hmm. artist and you're really Mm -hmm. thinking about it from an activist perspective, you're thinking about how do you build out a coalition or how do you build out a team of artists and creative people to be in dialogue with a team of organizers and movement builders so that you can really build a holistic practice to create real change um, through through a lot of this, through messaging, Mm -hmm. through performance, through literally dance through music through um you know fabric arts but also printmaking exactly there's so much going on i know and you have really always throughout your career you've created projects that have confronted a really a range of political issues from gun violence to racism and xenophobia to you know corporate greed and equal pay for women could you speak to 
how your experience being raised as an Iranian-American queer woman in an evangelical suburb of Texas helped you form your political identity and you know, when politics started becoming uh, kind of foundational to your art practice? Yeah, that's a great question. Man, I know evangelical Texas will do that to anybody. Let's be real. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Crazy. Right? Like, what can you— I was raised in the Bible Belt of Missouri, so I know a little bit of what you're probably speaking to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, for me, growing up in evangelical Texas, it was like— I'm a weirdo outsider moment one, you know, like not only was I like Iranian American and I was queer, I was also Baha'i in like a very like, you know, Christian community. And so I feel like being an outsider, it was always like, how do I, how do I kind of speak out against the fact that I feel and so many other people in this community feel marginalized and feel like we have nowhere to kind of voice anything about ourselves? Like we're kind of silenced. We're kind of all just assimilating mm-hmm. and trying to pretend that we're Christian in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Just wow. to fit in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it was to, so. Yeah, exactly. Do you know? Did you. The do path you have the least resistance. Yes. Exactly. Why did we celebrate Easter Every year when I was younger, I literally don't know anything about the Bible or Jesus, but we had an Same. Easter egg hunt. We got new outfits. Like we took Easter pictures every year. No way. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Just Amisa, to like fit I didn't in. know this about you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Me. Going but back I, to you. No, 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 no. I didn't know that. No, <laughs> but I'm no, just no. saying I, I, I empathize with you. <laughs> no, no, no. I super empathize with that as well because it was the same thing. We would also do that with Christmas. You know, we would also do that with Easter as well. And like in high school, it was like, oh, you're a cool kid if you like go to this like Christian sing-along. And I would like go to wow. them to like. Yeah. Like meet like cute people, you know, <laughs> but so, so I think that really set me off because I was seeing, you know, I was seeing my dad at work, like not getting the promotions he like so deeply deserved because he was working like around the clock, like sewed hard. I was experiencing mm-hmm. weird, like you're going to hell, like who are you kind of commentary all the time. Oh my God. You know, like, and so at a certain point I was like, and I think having an Iranian father who was really you know, he came to this country protesting against a CIA coup that was happening in Iran in the 1950s um, against. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's so so, inspiring. Yeah. And that's the thing is like that protest history exists in my family and in my mythology. And so him coming to this country for political asylum because he was protesting the CIA coup and like he threw a rock, a picture of his was taken and ended up on the cover of one of the newspapers. His family wanted him to escape for political asylum. So it's like, there's this, that was always part of our family's narrative, Mm -hmm. though I questioned it because he always would exaggerate. But I was like, dad, I believe you on this one because because I love this story. (laughs) And so we would always have this political dialogue where he would be like, no, you have to read, you have to research, you have to question this reality around you. And so as I got older, I just like got involved in activism as a, as as not really in high school as much as it was immediately when I went to college. Mm. I was like, 
okay, how can I get involved? What can I do? And I, and it's really interesting because the movement that I got involved with was prison abolition, which at that time wow. was real. Yeah. That's but, very forward thinking, especially know, in Texas. I know, I know. And it was because of a lot of like the, det- I know it's crazy. I'm like, what? And it, yeah, so the detention centers <laughs> that were, that were active in, in and around Texas and the Texas border, that was something that was happening all along. You know, that's not a new thing. And so, so there was a lot of energy around that. And there was a lot of energy around like private prison labor and how it was related to University of Texas mm-hmm. in, in, you know, the catering companies and in different ways um, through this company Sodexo Marriott. So I started an organization, a chapter of um, an organization uh, there called Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which was all about like the the drug to prison (laughs) pipeline. And then (laughs) because I also smoked a bunch of weed and (laughs) back in the day, (laughs) let's be real. Yes. Yeah. And not still do sometimes. Current (laughs) times. And And so it galvanized me and I was like, oh my God. And we did like sit-ins and we did all of these pressure campaigns at the school. And it sort of got me involved in Critical Resistance, which is still an organization that I have affiliation with now. And I heard Angela Davis speak. And so it's really interesting in revisiting this sort of, right? So it was like, it all kind of comes full circle for me that we're really in a moment of American history where prison abolition and police, like abolishing the police and talking about Mm -hmm. really changing the carceral state is a potential reality, at least, and if nothing more, it's in the mainstream dialogue, which that in itself is a huge Absolutely. Feat, you know? And so, so yeah. I, yeah. And so that's where it kind of started for me. Um, and it, it carries forward to today. And I was, I got involved, I was studying like art and filmmaking. And so for me, it started manifesting in a lot of videos that I was making and a lot of kind of animations and, and documentaries and sort of experimental work that sort of was, was a little bit less political at that time and more about the identity of being Iranian American and being in Texas. Cause that was always that outsiderness, um, like, you know, was the thing that galvanized me towards being political at all, I think. Well, I, I mean, there's certainly something that compels you to do what you do, because you're like the busy, you're like the Energizer Bunny on my Instagram feed. I feel like you're like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> rallying here, you're like organizing a bike ride here, like, you know, everywhere, delivering meals there. Um, and then also like making art and videos and, and graphics about it. It's, totally. I'm like exhausted just watching you. <laughs> yeah. And, and very inspired. I have a random question just to interject here. Please. Amy, why is your Instagram handle and website Tiny Scissors? Oh my God. It's so nerdy. And it's Say kind the of truth. A, it's kind of evolved <laughs> over time too. Oh my God. Okay, so it's I wanna it's know. From, I was trying to figure it out. That's very good because like, people should be able to follow along on her organizing activities on her Instagram oh, at yeah, Tiny yeah. Scissors. Follow at Tiny Scissors. It's all one word, yeah. right? Yes, it's Tiny all one word. One it's word. all yeah. one word. Um, it came from a Polish animator's film. Um, 
Oh my God, this is so nerdy. It came from a Polish animator's film where it was literally like he had made this animation and cut out these figures like to create. It was like the first time that like matting had ever happened with video, if that makes sense, where it's like you literally take a figure out of a frame and you paste it into another like frame with another background because that was before you could ever do that with the digital world. So this is literally thinking about going into a film strip and cutting these figures out. And I was like, oh, they must have made tiny scissors. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, and now I'm a video editor. And that makes sense because I'm small and cutting tiny scissors. And then I was like, oh, and I like to like have sex with women. And Tiny scissors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <amazing. laughs> it fits for so many things. It's so fitting. So those are some explanations. <laughs> Amy, you yeah. cover like the entire spectrum from, from the most intellectual to the most carnal, and I'm so behind that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> everything. I'm about it. I'm about all the things all the time. You gotta have Woof. you gotta have all those aspects, you know? Yeah. That's that's what makes you so dynamic. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I'm single, just being one there. of my favorite. I people. also yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wanna make sure we get through some of these. I wanna talk about your art practice. So um totally. one of your most widely recognized projects, which you alluded to earlier in the interview, is Word on the Street. It was a public art commission that was presented by Times Square Arts originally. Can you tell us about that project, how it began, how it evolved to include some of the biggest artists that we admire and and how it's like currently evolving now? It sounds like it's um still ongoing. Yeah, totally. So that project started, and this is like, again, speaks to the kind of rapid response way my practice unfolds. When 2017, you know, when the whole Trump election happened and we saw all of this crazy shit going down, for me, the Muslim ban was like huge and just like, you know, heart-wrenching because hello, um, it's affecting, you know, middle, you know, and it's still (laughs) going on, you know, affecting, affecting friends and families and, and, you know, it's a whole other story and everything that was happening with me too. It was like, okay, how do we kind of engage? And this was the question. It's like, how do we engage artists and writers and creative practitioners in, into the political realm in a way that seems like we can create a platform. And in this case, a platform for female identified voices, because that was something that needed to be amplified at that time. So I reached out to the um, writer, Ann Carson, who's like a friend of mine that I know Mm -hmm. through Lori Anderson and asked her to write. I know she's so amazing. I saw that when you were like, oh, I reached out to my friend. I was like, oh, man, I did not know she had so many famous friends. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, Anne's incredible. And I'm like, what can I? Whatever. You probably do, too, man. I mean, I feel like once you're in the art world long no, enough. No, you're my just, most famous friend. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you and Camilo. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I feel like... Um, No, anyway, so Anne is incredible. You know, she's like a Greek translator. She's like an incredible poet and writer. And she um, 
she had done a Greek translation of Antigone called Antigonic. And so she actually mm. sent this language that is from Antigone from 451 BC that says, I was born for love, not hatred. And it was kind of just like, boom, hit me that it wow. was. Wow, beautiful. You know, Right? We haven't learned. And so I took that language and she wrote a few different phrases and made these large scale handcrafted felt banners that then we took out into the streets. And those were kind of, again, as we had referenced before, kind of black, white, and red, very graphic, very kind of Russian constructivist looking. Um, and we took them out into the streets for the 2017's Women's March. And before that, we did this banner making to have all of my kind of friends in the art community come and make their own so we had a community of people to go out in the streets together. That moment I never knew would then evolve into like a years-long project because um, a curator at Times Square Arts um, saw it, Andrew Dinwiddie, he saw it and he was like, oh, we've been thinking about doing like a signage campaign, having um, banners in the Times Square district on advertising space. And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. So then through that connection, my um, I brought in and I had been already talking to um, an arts collective that I have with my siblings called House of Trees. We had been talking about how do we how do we really like amplify this project and they had talked about and um sort of strategize and thinking about, well, let's bring in artists and writers and all this. So the project was kind of like this evolving organic thing. And then through connections that that my siblings have and that I have, we were able to bring in Carrie Mae Weems, Wangechi Mutu, which was for the first phase. And that happened around- With Jenny Holzer. Yeah, Jenny Holzer, Tanya Bruguera. One of my personal favorite artists, yeah. Yes, she's amazing. And she continues to do like renegade work even to this day right now, responding to all that's happening. And so we were working with this organization, um, Center for Refugee Services, to collaborate with female seamstresses um, who were then helping us fabricate the banners and making their own banners as well as part of the project in thinking about when we get these commissions from these organizations, Times Square Arts, we got a big one from the Watermill Center. Center as well. When we're doing that as artists and activists, how did how does that money flow? And so we were able with mm. that commission to kind of put our money where our mouth was and give the fabric the um, the female refugees as much as we were giving to these big name female artists in terms of their fees, so that they were able to kind of we were able to support. Um, these women and to support this organization with the money that we, we received for the project. So that was a really cool aspect of it. And the project continued. Yeah. So it showed it like we did a pop-up at the Guggenheim museum. It showed at Socrates sculpture park. Um, it showed at art pace Love down Socrates. in Texas. Yeah. And then we were able to kind of, um, do this thing with it where whenever it was showing somewhere with these with these uh, felt banners, we were able to take them out of the installation and bring them out into the streets as protests were arising and then put them back into the installation so that they are becoming this living archive. Not only are they a living archive of the moment because of the language that's being used mm-hmm. and the imagery that's being used um, to respond to the political scenario, but they're also able to be an living archive of the street energy and this action and serve to break down this invisible wall between the street and the institution. 
Amy, your practice is so rich and varied. Who, I guess, or, or what are some of your sources of inspiration? Yeah, that's so interesting and such a great question. Um, yeah, a lot of my inspirations, it's funny because I do a lot of sort of research into the past. Um, a lot of my, ins- like, I love the Dadaists. And I think yeah. I'm looking a lot to, you know, like Hugo Ball, the Cabaret Voltaire. I'm looking a lot to what artists were doing during wartime and in that movement to think about how do you build in moments of chaos and how do you have moments of kind of, um, you know, just wild creative expression to sort of define a new era. You know what I mean? To define what's happening in the new Um, so that's one. I already mentioned Sun Ra, who's like my main jam inspiration. And I'm just always, always, always (laughs) returning to that. I know it's ridiculous, but it's really true. Um, I sort of, you know, it's interesting. It's weird because he is literally my muse. Like I can't avoid it. It's like, he is my main muse and it's always going to be true for me. I think it's interesting in thinking about artists too, who have gotten more into the activist space. Like I've seen Nan Golden a lot out at these protests. I can't lie. Mm. Um, and knowing oh, the interesting. Yeah. I've seen her a lot out in the streets actually. And I think, um, Seeing her and knowing what she did sort of in the um, arts community with Sackler Payne is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that for me has been an inspiration to kind of see her out there and still active. Um, And I think another for me, again, sort of like an older is um, honestly doing a lot of reading around James Baldwin and kind yes. of like thinking, you know, and thinking about I love that leaders. documentary. Yes. Everyone yeah. should. Honestly, I feel like everyone should rewatch that right now in a moment because I, I think. Um, yeah. Should we say the name of it? Yeah, I am not your Negro. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I am not your Negro. <laughs> that way people can look it up, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I think it's really, I think it's key. It's incredible. Um, it is incredible, and it's also this moment of, like, really, I don't know, I feel like thinking about the way that these movements are going now and the way that social media plays a role, there's so many more people to kind of look towards in this moment, but at that time of thinking about civil rights and what was happening, then it was kind of like he represented thought leaders that um, are coming Mm. from the more creative and from the more analytical. And in that way, I also think about, um, you know, William Popel is another inspiration for me. And you know what I mean? Thinking about sort of- one of the last, one of the last shows I got to see at MoMA before the quarantine. Oh, yeah. What did you think? Yeah. I was actually, I was not too familiar with his practice before, but I I was lucky enough, uh, I think Will was also there. We were lucky enough to get um, a tour from Stuart Comer, and I immediately, I mean, that's how I can test if, if it was like a good tour. It's like when I go home and spend like hours on Wikipedia and like <laughs> researching the person immediately after. So I, I was super inspired. And Laurie Anderson is also a big muse for you too, right? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I was lucky in that my siblings are artists basically and curators. And so I was able to like have that kind of like younger kid. Um, I get all the cool references for bands and art and stuff. That was me. Yeah. So I was lucky in that way. And I remember I was on this trip in the desert when I was 16 years old with my siblings who were in college. And I have no idea why they took me on this trip because I wouldn't have. But, um, (laughs) you know, like, oh, yeah, come along, 16 year old nerd. But yeah, so I I was there in the van and we were like zoning out and I was kind of like looking out the window in New Mexico and all of a sudden Lori Anderson's Oh Superman came on and it was like, "Ah, ah, 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 ah." and I was like, what is this? And it was so (laughs) transcendent, like something opened up in my brain where I was like, I had never heard music like this. I had never heard a woman doing kind of this poetic spoken word. I was like, is this art? Is this music? I was like, what the hell? And so I was like zoning out and really kind of like getting into the groove. And then never really knew what that was, actually. And I don't think I even asked them what that was. And later, a few years later, when I was in undergrad, I heard it again. And finally, I was like, oh, my God, what is that? And they were like, oh, this is this artist, Laurie Anderson, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, what? And then wow. being then. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And being in this, like, um, I was actually studying, like, film and new media at this um program where it was so transcendent. This woman, Sandy Stone, was there who was like a transgendered professor back in the 90s. And so there was all this kind of like radical education going on there. And they had this whole segment about Lori Anderson. And I remember like watching her perform. I think it was... um, Um, United States. She did this whole performance called United States and they had documentation of it. And I literally, I mean, this is so nerdy, but I literally like started crying because I was just like, Oh, she'll oh do my that God. to That's you. That's not nerdy. You know? That's very moving. I, I remember yeah, was, seeing yeah. her performance at the Park Avenue Armory in, I can't remember when. And yes, all the feels. All the feels and then some. Totally, totally. I think like there was something about seeing a woman on stage sort of like by herself, speaking her truth, speaking out about politics, creating this kind of like super visionary world that like sucks you in. I was like, oh my God, this is like... I didn't even know this was possible, you know, in terms of like an artistic practice or, or a career. And so I remember like seeing that and then going to grad school at NYU. She was an artist in residence at that time, like randomly. And Amazing. then we, which is like, so I know. And so I ended up, she needed like a video person, um, someone like a video artist to help collaborate on this work she was doing called Delusion. And I spoke with her, the head of the program put us together and like, she, like, we started working together and she, we traveled the world together. And that was such like a weird, crazy, yeah. So then- That is so insane that- it came full circle in that way. 
I know. And I never would have expected that. And that's something where it's just kind of like the universe pushing you in a direction that you don't even know where it's taking you. You're kind of like, uh. And now I'm like, yeah, like doing this video, traveling the world with her, getting to know her practice. And it really shifted my practice because I was so used to being behind the camera and making video art and then seeing her perform and seeing her be this badass and kind of like, you know, tell all these crews of men, this is what I need. This is how I need it. Seeing how she worked in like, you know, music and performance and visual art and kind of overlapped all of those things, depending on what the context and the concept were. I was like, oh my God, this is possible. And like, it's possible to perform in front of an audience and like, wait a minute. And so my practice shifted in that moment after working with her and while working with her to becoming more of a performance artist, which is interesting. And then using video to support the performance. So everything kind of shifted focus. And I also, so um was lucky in that Karen Finley, who's like also an amazing feminist performance artist, um, known for her kind of like work on the body and and trauma and all of this. Um, she was my mentor in college as in grad school as well at NYU. Like I took classes with her and I ended up touring with her a bit as well. So I had these kind of art moms. So I felt really wow. lucky in that way to kind of push me in the direction of of performance. Um And understanding that as a woman, even though it might feel uncomfortable, like putting yourself out there and being loud and um, and speaking your truth is like is possible and can be celebrated and you can get paid for it. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that. Yeah, that must have been. Yeah, just so I don't know. I don't know what the word the right word. I don't know, surreal. I don't, to like have idolized someone or like admired someone from afar for so long at such a like impressionable age of 16 and, you know, citing that as one of the influences that pursued, that inspired you to pursue the arts and then working with them and having this like very close collaborative working and professional or personal relationship with them. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It was extremely surreal because I think that was the moment where you realized, oh, I can have an art career too. You know what I mean? Where you meet these artists, you know, where you're kind of like, Mm -hmm. it demystifies when you meet the artists themselves and you have a conversation with it, it demystifies this kind of pedestal you may have put them on or this, you know, this kind of mystique of, wow, she's somewhere up there in the ether. She's this well-known established person. And then when you meet them and they're normal and they you know, have problems and are, you know, just wanting to go get a bite to eat and a coffee. And you're just, you know what I mean? (laughs) Suddenly you're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm that person too. I could do that. When I came to know your practice, um, it was actually during a studio visit at Project for Empty Space when you were doing residency there. And it was right before you had your last solo exhibition, which I'm not sure if people are aware. In addition to your political work, you also make very deeply personal artworks that investigate your family mythology, including the myth of Layla and um, your last solo exhibition, Ghosts, which was at Project for Empty Space, which I guess you you actually kind of pair the political and the personal. Um, yeah. Uh, could you speak about totally. that show and, yeah, and how it felt to, you know, kind of open, your up and open yourself up and be so vulnerable in presenting these very personal works? Yeah, that's a thread that's gone throughout my art practice. And I used to, 
I, you know, I was so obsessed with this idea of, of the immigrant experience and sort of how, how, what this, what this otherness is, um, to embody, you know, and, and, and what are the mythologies that we live within that we kind of live, um, from our family, like how much does that frame our reality and frame the way that we interact in the world? So there's always this investigation, not only of like the large scale political, but also the very, very internal and personal. And I used to dress up like my dad all the time, like back at the beginning of my art career and make these videos where I would like recite words that he would, you know, say to me, pieces of advice that he would say to me as scripts. And for ghosts, my, so that show, my dad had actually passed away, um, not that long before I started making that body of work. And that was a huge Mm. life shift for me. And for any folks that have ever kind of lost your parents, um, or lost someone that's important to you, it's like, you know, how deeply that kind of shifts your perspective in terms of what's important and where your energy flows. Mm. Okay, so looking ahead to what's next for you, I mean, you're obviously working on so many different amazing projects, but one of the things that you're also most well known for is the fact that you're running for city council in District 38 of Brooklyn in 2021 as an art project. And um, maybe a lot of people know about your performance at the Whitney Museum, You Never Know, which was a campaign campaign speech that what t- turned cathartic rap um to rally voters for the 2018 midterm election. So could you tell us more about this project and why it's so important to demystify the process of running for public office? Yeah, totally. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting moment with electoral politics um, because so much has shifted in the time of coronavirus. So I actually, um, this is a project that developed around the time also of like the midterm elections for 2018 and thinking about and with Trump and thinking about how can we get disenfranchised, you know, POC, female, female identified, queer voices kind of recentered in the electoral political landscape as leaders and for artists and creative practitioners to think about ways that they can tap into the electoral political realm to kind of infiltrate the system and sweep change, sweep progressive change from the ground up. So, so I started this run, um, and, and I actually am a, a fellow in civic engagement at Pratt Institute for 2020, which is really exciting because it's going to mean that I'm going to be developing curriculum around this idea as well as having support financially to kind of um, create this this idea. Oh, wow. so you're going to be projects. teaching this to students? Yeah. So exactly. So it's oh, wow. so so part of this whole project is that how do we demystify the process of running for office, and how do we um, rip the veil? off of what it means to um, take the steps needed to to get more people into the system that might not feel like they have the power or the agency to do that. And so part of the project is not only using um, the political platform as a way to represent the community and to speak to issues that are happening right now around, you know, tenant organizing, housing, health care, um, 
but and you know police brutality and prison abolition and all of this but also how do we create more funding opportunities for people in the arts how do we bring in arts into education how do we kind of um how do we pivot and how do we make the political environment a bit more inclusive yeah and absolutely i mean i think that you you said it yourself that i mean when you started this project in 2018 it was it's a very different time it's 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 constantly evolving and now we are here in 2020 and it's a very different landscape and that's really great in a lot of ways but I can understand how that might impact your way forward because it is happening in 2021 so yeah and so being reactive to that those changes yeah is important and I think yeah and so I think you know I don't know. We'll see where it all leads. I think I'm leaving myself open in this moment to kind of allow it to unfold organically and in, in, in thinking about, um, yeah, and thinking about what the kind of best strategies are for this, for this run, if that makes sense. Like how to involve mm-hmm. a community, like how to involve the arts community, how to involve my local community, but how to not also feel like, I'm co-opting something or I'm overstepping, you know, and, and, then doing that, doing that fine yeah. balance. Cause it's that's a really interesting yeah. point. You know, uh, our mutual friend, Carmen Ermo, who's uh, a brilliant curator at the Brooklyn museum. Uh, we went on a trip to Miami together just for fun. And I was lucky enough to accompany her on some of her studio visits. She set up with artists. And one of the artists that we visited was, um, was making all of these amazing paintings about like the gentrification that's happening in Miami. And I think that he was actually selected to be in the Whitney Biennial. And he was telling Mm. the story about how like the organizers that he's involved with and the local activists in the community in Miami, when they heard, they were really cool with him, like being involved and with documenting the, uh, movement with his paintings up until the point when he got selected to be in the Whitney Biennial and the whole press around it. And they were actually like, you know, it caused some controversy and he had to like work through that. So I think it's a really interesting line that you have to kind of straddle in a sensitive way when you are an artist and you are an activist who is truly um, entrenched in these communities. But maybe, you know, you are, you're recognizing and being respectful of the fact there are also activists who are purely activists who have been doing this work for a long time. Yeah, it's, you said it the best. That's exactly where I'm at with it. But it's interesting because I'm doing such deep work right now in thinking about the fact that this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, and that this change is something that is going to happen over many, many years. And so I'm now strategizing about the fact that there's a woman in my district named Whitney who, who's running for city council, who is doing amazing work and also doing mutual aid work and also doing abolition work. And we actually organize in the same exact circles in the community. And so I'm now having like an existential question because I think she's an amazing leader as well. And she's more deeply connected to the organizers in the community where I'm thinking, what would it look like to make this body of work around running for office around a run for office that she's doing to support her because she has a better chance of actually winning and creating this change in this community. And then 
you know, going more into the role of artist, you know, first Mm -hmm. and then doing the learning and the listening and then running for state assembly in 2022 when I've done that work of connecting with community leaders, organizing with Whitney, doing the body of work around what it means to run for city council, because there's also this trepidation that I have. And again, this is me laying myself bare and I don't know if we want to include this, but Mm -hmm. like, There's a trepidation Mm -hmm. that I have of the amount of energy that it takes to run for office and the amount of energy that it takes to make a body of work around running for office. Do you know what I mean? And then the amount of energy that it takes to be in a fellowship and also creating curriculum around running for office. You know what I mean? Running for office and civic engagement. It's like- even as a practical thing, like you you having to miss out on Skohegan because of the thing, the shift in the timeline. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like a really important thing for a lot of artists if you're purely going to be pursuing your, uh, prioritizing your artistic practice. But if you're doing this hybrid model, then it's like, how do you make that decision? Exactly. How do you make that decision and how do you do it in a way where you're really thinking about the needs of the community? Because that's the activist part kicking in Mm -hmm. where I'm like, it's about that decentering yourself. So what's the end goal? What's the end goal? Like, is it really about, you know, creating change in the community and sweeping progressive change from the ground up and and creating new visionary content and ways of campaigning so that we can include like you know thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how to tap in celebrities how to tap in voices that yeah. are like you know can really amplify these yeah. messages right no i was gonna say yeah like a cardi b or like a yeah. kanye west like music i know kanye west is like kind of canceled but like he does yeah. he did <laughs> have canceled. like an amazing like aesthetic so like yeah like a music video but like for a for a local candidate. Like that would be amazing. <laughs> like why can't exactly. the quality of production be at that level? Yeah. Why can't the quality of production be at that level? And like, you're having parties and rallies that people want to attend because they're fucking cool. You know what I mean? I think what's interesting is I was always seeing myself as a thought leader, or as a leader in doing that myself as the face of that. But what I'm realizing in doing the work in the community is If someone else in the community has a better chance of winning, who's a badass leader, you know what I mean? Who like Mm -hmm. exactly stands for what I stand for. It's like maybe my role right now, particularly because of the street action and what's happening with, with the social uprising now, my role is to sexify it artify it, make it engaging, Mm. do the work. Uh, You know what I mean? Like get people really fucking interested and excited and be the artist working around the political and then move from that space, make those alliances, you know, work with that organizing group, continue to organize in the community. And then in two years, run when I'm actually like have the support a have the support of the community and b have already done that body of work yeah I think that in a lot of ways it makes a lot more sense because it's like it's so hard to be the subject and also be the one that's creating the art about the subject so by taking that pressure off of yourself you can really just lean into the artist's role and in some ways I think make a I don't know, make a stronger body of work, maybe. I think so, too. Because you're not having to play both roles at the same time. I think, you know, doing it first person was always something that I thought I wanted to do because I have a history of doing that in my art practice. But I think in doing the organizing work over the last, like, months and realizing how taxing that is to be the face and the politician, it's like 
you're not going to make as powerful of a body of work if you're doing both at the same time. That's the learning lesson that I've Mm -hmm. come to. I think it's like you have to do one. And then when you move into the, into the moment of doing the run, you have a team with you who's helping you like this coalition building that I want to do now with Mm -hmm. artists around bringing them into street movements. I'm excited about it because I've met so many people through doing this kind of deep investigation into the community um, who are also artists, who are also like, you know, making work that I think um, has a place, you know? And I think there's also other mm-hmm. artists like Sean Leonardo and like Sable Lee Smith and like people mm. who are making work around prison labor, who are making work around, um, you know, the black experience that I think mm-hmm. are are people to to speak to and to kind of like engage in this in this movement that's happening. I mean, Sean is how I I feel like in a lot of ways Sean is how I got my Pratt Institute fellowship because he started that fellowship and then we spoke together with Guadalupe um at Tufts um with David Antonio Cruz and like it was You know, it was from, yeah. And, and like, we all really super bonded and like, I, you know, whatever in this way, it was like, and now, you know, and now those are how like these, these, these relationships unfold. But I think, yeah, it's interesting. We're at this interesting place where I feel like collaboration and decentering is like where, where it's at. So Amy, at the end of every episode, we'd love to do a little segment called Art Kiki with each of our guests where we have them spill the tea about an art world gossip or trend or something that they want to go off about. And I know that we have probed some ideas with you, so hopefully you're ready to go. (laughs) Okay, so here, so this is an Art Kiki that is really interesting given my like whole like history that I told you about. Um, about Lori Anderson, and it's kind Ooh. of, <laughs> yeah, because I know, and I, we'll see We've how been this fits for in. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple kikis in here. So the first is basically that. So she, so I'm working with her on a like exhibition right now that's supposed to go up at the Hirshhorn Museum in DC, and I have to be honest with you, I want a kiki about this work that she was trying to make. Basically, she wanted to make a work for this new, you know, and she's known as like this socially conscious artist and like has been an inspiration for me in those ways. She wanted to make a piece for this show that was literally her in a black hoodie mumbling to herself. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I, so... Yeah, and it was like, it's going to be a sculpture and I'm going to be like projecting my figure of myself onto, you know, onto it wearing this black hoodie. And I was just like, you can't do that, you know, and it's like, did you, how did you, you say that to Laurie? Okay, how do so you at say first, no? Okay, how do you so, say you can't do that right? to Laurie Anderson? Right? Like, I, yeah, I didn't know exactly how to approach it. I felt very much like... Uh, and so I think the first time, like, she said it, it was just kind of, like, dead silence in the room, and we were, like, hoping she would kind of forget about that idea, because she has a tendency to do that, and then it, like, it came up again in a second meeting, and finally, yeah, 
Like, I was basically me and um, her, like, this person who works for her, the studio manager, were basically like, um, I don't know if that's, like, the best idea to do right now. And she's like, she's like, why? Like, I think of it as Bergman, you know, like a death cloak. And we're like, that's also troubling because it is a death cloak. <laughs> AKA, oh my goodness. AKA like Trayvon Martin, the origin of Black Lives Matter. Like you as a white woman cannot do that. And so it was this whole back and forth. And finally she like made me talk to the curators at the Smithsonian like in front of her and describe and explain why this couldn't happen. And so it was like this whole conversation where she's like, I want to do it, but like, it might not be appropriate. Amy is going <laughs> to tell you why. <laughs> yeah, Amy is going to, yes, yes. She's a stick in the mud. and <laughs> She's an old stick in the mud. And I was just like, dude, I am saving you from getting panned. Like, let me tell oh, you right wow. now. Like, that is, you know what I mean? Wow. So, yeah. So I had to go into this whole thing about Black Lives Matter. What was crazy was, even in that, where I was like, you know, you that's a symbol of, like, this movement. You can't co-op that. They were like, yeah. the curator, who will not be named, was also like, oh, yeah. No, I think of that as, like, punk, like a black hoodie. Like, what, you know, what? that's not. And I was just like, no. And then the death cloak thing was said again, and I was just like, no. <laughs> oh, God. So in the end, that didn't. <laughs> happen which is really great and um and so like you saved your ass <laughs> I saved her ass I saved her ass yeah well Amy I have to say that both Amitra and I have such deep respect and <laughs> true reverence for Laurie Anderson it's funny I was actually at Mass Mocha earlier this year and spent basically over an hour devouring some of her films that were being presented. So, Laurie, if you're out there, if you're listening, we are such massive fans. You can do no wrong. And we are so excited for your exhibition at the Hirshhorn in Washington. So, Amy, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I am so inspired, so awed. And also, like, very titillated by our art kiki. It's really been a joy, a, pr a privilege, and a pleasure. Yeah, you too, Will and Amitha. Like, I super appreciate both of you for doing this and for having me on the show. I feel like, I don't know, now's the time for podcasts. We need more good content out there in the world. Do you know what I mean? And y'all are cute, and I love you. We love you too. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Art from the Outside. As a friendly reminder, please subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Art from the Outside Podcast. Our sound engineer is Brett Fuchs. Photography by Enrique Vega and original music by Lola's Ghost. Stay well, be safe, and hope you'll join us for the next episode.